DJ Simulationistas, sup, with Dr. D, Dan Raymer, and Dr. J, Janice Palaganis, coming at you from the Center for Medical Simulation in Boston, Massachusetts. So buckle up your mannequin, and let's roll. Welcome to DJ Simulation. He says, Sup, you're here with Janice Pelaganis and Dan Raymer. Sup, Janice. Sup, Dan. How are you today? I'm good. Uh, I'm good. We had a really interesting conversation uh, a couple of days ago with one of our fellows uh, analyzing some videos for a research project uh, that we uh-huh. have done. And uh, the topic of the research project, as several of our projects uh, are, is on speaking up. Oh, fun. And he had been watching debriefings, and he was just uh, really taken aback by the, the honesty and kind of embarrassment of the participants who who had been in a scenario and, you know, in some manner failed to speak up when they should have. Mm-hmm. He was, uh, he had such an interesting... Which is not abnormal. No, it's quite normal. And it's the thing we're studying. And, you know, we're kind of looking at what are the thresholds for people, what are the kinds of things they'll speak up about, and what are the kinds of things that they uh, hold their tongue, and, you know, what are the circumstances and, the you know, the kind of uh, social distance of the people that you're speaking up to. There's all sorts of interesting variables to it, and understanding that, I think, you know, helps figure out how to break down some of those barriers. He said, boy, he said, uh, you know, they said some really interesting things. It's too bad we can't use those in a publication. And I said, what do you mean? Of course we can use those in a publication. They uh, agreed to the consent form, and I told them that it would be anonymous, and certainly the things they say, you know, are expected to be in the publication. he said gee, it's so embarrassing, and they could be really upset, and in fact, they could jeopardize Wait, who's they? The, the, the participants in the scenario. Uh, they they uh-huh. could jeopardize your career. You work for the anesthesiology department. And I thought, boy, that's such an interesting take. Maybe it's me. I... I I, I guess wait, wait, can I get some clarity? So he's afraid that he's the research or the the things that are were said would embarrass the field of anesthesia. Yes, yes, I see. and those individuals, of course, who you know <laughs> who who realized they should have spoken up and they didn't, and they were exploring you know, their frame, why is it that they found that difficult to speak up about or didn't think of speaking up or, you know, only in retrospect was it so obvious to them. And, and you know, it was really quite, I was, uh, when I did the experiment, I was very impressed with how thoughtful people were about, you know, their their own, you know, inhibitions uh, to to do the right thing, which, 
you know, it's just very normal. It's just really hard sometimes to decide to um, stick your neck out and say something when there are all sorts of pressures on you. Sure. But what what but what struck me was kind of the notion about research in general. Like, why do we do research? I, I was thinking, you know, maybe it's maybe it's a character flaw or a flaw in my thinking. But I've always believed that research's purpose is to upset the apple cart, to challenge the status quo, <laughs> to get us to think about what, whether what we do really is the right thing. And, yeah. you know, if you don't do that, then you just kind of stay in the Middle Ages. <laughs> no, I agree with you. I mean, well, I don't think it's... There's always bias in research. And and I think as you are, if you're the principal investigator, it's sticking within, you know, your hypothesis, but also doing some triangulation within the research to make sure that you're, it's not a bias. Right. So absolutely. But I mean, I think it's a balance between both. I I wouldn't just seek out to... I mean, that is, it is a purpose is to prove and disprove at the same time. It, it is tricky though. And it's tricky to kind of keep your biases out of, uh, out of things. Uh, I have another study that, uh, this morning I was just analyzing data and it kind of shocked me because it supported the original hypothesis that we started with, which I thought, you know, was an interesting challenging hypothesis, but I never thought that the data would really support it. It was just really hard to squeeze out of an experiment, uh, a Uh very convincing uh, argument that our hypothesis was true. And every statistical test that I performed came out statistically significant. That's awesome. I know, but now I've got this data and I know that People think I have a bias about this, and I even think I have a bias about this. And and as hard as I've tried to stay kind of out of it and and you know not being able to influence the results, you know there are the results, <laughs> and, and and I'm just so worried that I that I'm not you know, self-critical enough and that I don't have enough triangulators as you've described them to say, yes, in fact, uh, Mm -hmm. the data support this hypothesis. Well, but I think you're speaking to scientific conduct and I, and, and I think that's what makes a really great researcher is, is to be thinking in that way. And, and I love this topic because I think you're talking about two different aspects of scientific misconduct, which is, you know, when you have a bias and you're not reflective enough and concerned enough to think about the fact that you have that bias and how to disprove it. But also, I think not disclosing what, you know, whatever data there is at at the uh, expense of embarrassing a field or I mean, they're actual findings. So in, in a way, that's scientific misconduct as well. So I'm really interested in your reply to him, our well, fellow. Well, yeah. I mean, I gave him uh, a little riff about how 
sacred research is and how important it is to tell the truth regardless of the political consequences and that if it embarrasses my colleagues, well, so be it. It's important that people be embarrassed now and then by their actions when they turn out to be, you know, the wrong treatment or the wrong diagnosis. You got to have enough humility to say, hey, wait a second, I was wrong here. And, uh, you know, and I did it the wrong way. uh, But in the future, I'm going to do it the right way. Well, I think that's, it's also the reason why people go through IRB. True. To protect, to protect exactly this. Yeah. So Um, the IRB, the Institutional Review Board or Ethics Committee. Yeah. And I think, you know, that uh, over my career, the role of the uh, IRB has tightened up considerably. And, uh, you know, I think the U.S. Congress did a did a a great job in crafting a law that really required ethical conduct in research. And as much as I hate it, having to go through and, you know, do the online test every couple of years to make sure that I understand all the ethical guidelines and all my colleagues and research assistants and everyone else has to be you know, has to go through that as well. I think those are all really, really terrific things. But I, but I think it's also important to understand that it by itself doesn't protect the research from from bias. Because right. you know, it's 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 always it's always tricky. You know, well, like one example is uh, is uh, is I was analyzing the data, we had uh, multiple raters uh, rate performance. Mm-hmm. And it's always a real dilemma of how to characterize the inter-rater reliability. And, uh, you know, it was very difficult to get a team of people together to review and score all these lengthy videos. Mm-hmm. And, you know, from one point of view, when I saw mismatches in people's ratings, one cure for that is to have a third party or have the people get together and agree on a score or somehow rationalize those scores. The other approach is to, you know, look overall to make sure that there's not a strong bias one way or the other, and then average the scores between the raters. And uh, because there's a very large number of data points, if they disagree in one direction in one case and in another direction in another case, those all come out in the wash. And yeah. so you wind up with exactly the same result that if you go through the painstaking process of having a third reviewer spend many weeks uh, reviewing the same videos and giving a giving a tie-breaking score. And but you know the the bias in this case it weighs on me, and so do I take the expedient way out and average the data, or do I really, really, really go the extra mile to make sure that the bias is, you know, mitigated as much as possible and use the 
third rater approach. And and I just found that a really, really difficult dilemma. Mm. Certainly can't divorce it from the bias I have. And sure. now that I've analyzed the data, the bias is even stronger. So I, you know, would hate to kind of go back and question my decision, which in this case was to average the data. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to tell you to go the long way. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> but isn't well, that funny? Well, now I'm worried about it. Well, I, but I, see, I, isn't that funny? I think that's really great is, you know, when the data is starting to support your bias, y- you know, you're getting a little more rigorous and you're thinking of ways to make it more rigorous. And I think that's what we need to do. And a lot of people don't. Yeah. And I and what I think is really interesting about the question from the fellow is that, you know, we're always worried about falsification and fabrication. And in this case, it is a type of it, but it, it's from, you know, good intent, if if you will, of protection, which is really um, paradoxical because it's actually not supporting healthcare in general or the field, because, you know, it's kind of like, you know, things that we talk about in our IMS course, which is if you withhold hard-hitting feedback, you're actually not being nice and being kind and caring toward a person or toward a field in this case is giving that feedback so that we can find ways to improve. Otherwise, we'll never improve as, you know, as you were saying. Yeah, yeah. I think the fellow, you know, as he thought about it, appreciated that argument, but uh, I think (laughs) he was still a little reticent to see some of the things that were said in print. (laughs) Yeah, of course. But, you know, and I think you're hitting on something that's just been killing me, which is the, the replication crisis in research and how, you know, it's, it's revealing a lot of, scientific misconduct because we can't replicate anything because because people are publishing along their bias or whatever funding mechanism they've received the bias of that funding mechanism and it's and and you know we're starting to see this and if we need to be able to reproduce and really understand um, what we think we understand we have to publish everything that we find right and we have to encourage others to repeat the studies and similar ways, but ways that kind of, you know, after you have four or five studies on the same topic, if they've all been done a little bit differently, they shake out the the inherent biases which exist. I, I think it's really important to distinguish between research misconduct and bias. Because bias, as you said at the outset of our conversation, is always there. There are Mm -hmm. always biases. It's a spectrum. And how much the bias actually affects, the biases uh, affect the outcome of the research, you know, depends on how strongly they're mitigated and the circumstances Mm -hmm. of the study. Mm -hmm. And so that's just vastly different than someone saying, I really want to get this published. I'm gonna right. fudge the data, oh, or right, right, I'm right. gonna, I'm gonna, uh, although, uh, you know, create some, some research data. bias is the foundation to to some scientific misconduct, but definitely not all. 
Yeah, there's certainly a there's certainly a spectrum there, you know, like is my decision to average the data, you know, does that you could make a decision like that and it could be scientific misconduct if you really are doing it and you know full well it's the wrong thing to do and it introduces a different result than you would get if you did the study a different way. So, you know, it's a spectrum for sure uh, where at one end of the spectrum is, is gross m- misconduct. At the other end of the spectrum is innocent and uncontrollable bias which exists in every kind of research study that you do so um so i think that's what's that's what's fun about uh doing research is thinking about these existential questions janice (laughs) no but what i love about it is that you know what you're bringing out is bias has this, you know, negative meaning in in research, but we could use it as a positive trigger to, um, you know, when you when you're self aware of bias or aware of any bias, it's a trigger to make it more rigorous or find other ways to um, make sure that that bias is not at play with the findings. So That's thanks, true. Dan. That's yeah. true. We each have an inherent bias. I mean, you're short and you see everything looking up and I'm tall and I see everything looking down. That's a bias. (laughs) (laughs) That's why we do research so well together. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Take care. All right, Dan. Thanks for listening. DJ Simulationistas, what's up? is brought to you by the Center for Medical Simulation. Find out more about CMS and learn about our simulation instructor training and course offerings at www.harvardmedsim.org. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.